When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going, but there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet. But you don't have to give up some of your faves entirely. Impossible Foods makes meat from plants. They're solving the meat problem with more meat. By creating delicious meat from plants that's better for you and the planet, Impossible lets you enjoy some of your favorite meaty products with a plant-based twist. Ground beef, homestyle meatballs, sausage patties, all made from plants. And that's just a few of their delicious and versatile options. No more tension between craving meat but not wanting to eat so much of it or sacrificing your carnivorous faves for your health. Indulge in nutrient-packed, plant-based goodness and feel good doing it. Check out impossiblefoods.com to see how you can help solve the meat problem with more meat. That's I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E-F-O-O-D-S.com. Betches Media presents... Chrissy Teigen referred to Donald Trump as a pussy-ass bitch. Look, he's a sick puppy. He, he, shouldn't, be, he shouldn't be there. Well, I lost half a day of skiing. I'm going to punch him out. I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to be happy. The Betches Sub Podcast. A speaker has not been elected. Hello, this is the Better Step Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. I'm Amanda Dumarin, the news director at Betches. I'm Elise Morales, a comedian and SUP newsletter writer. And I'm Millie Tamaris, comedian and SUP video contributor. Not only SUP video contributor, just just contributor to Samsung. I mean, any device that oh. makes an Android. <laughs> we have already raised this on the podcast, but Millie's, Millie's viral moment. I mean, it goes, it go, it keeps giving. I can't believe, I can't believe 1 million likes. Stay true to yourself is the lesson, right? Stay true to yourself. Because I've been preaching, how long have I been annoying about androids, guys? We know. (laughs) I mean, the sentiment has resonated with the people. The people people were ready for this conversation. You've been ready for a long time, but now finally the people are ready to talk about androids. And that's the thing about SUP is that, Society may not be ready, but we're ready, and we're here when everyone else catches up with us. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. We're always on the cutting edge. We're always on the cutting edge. Uh, it is the Thursday before Memorial Day weekend. Before before we just hop into the news, how how's everybody doing? I, I have never needed a long weekend more. Yes. Yes. Uh, I've, I, you know, you know me, you know me, you know, I, I, I texted about, um, I saw the Hillsong doc. Mm. If you guys, and and the last two parts are coming out tomorrow. If y'all want some juicy church gossip shit, celebrity pastor who fucked the nanny. Sorry, spoiler (gasps) alert. Um, Sorry, guys. Um, But that makes me want to watch it. There's somebody I, I recognized from that fucking doc that at least also knows that I will tell you after the fucking show. Wow. Okay. That's exciting. (laughs) Oh my Um, gosh. But yeah, I saw Blink 182 last night. Yes! So that's where I'm at. Vibes I are saw, high. I, vibes are extremely high. They were so good. It's kind of great. It was like, it was this moment where I was like, oh, right. They were the biggest band out for a long time. And this is fucking why, because they're really, really good. Um, all the banter was as it was. Uh, <laughs> it felt like really a trip back to 1999 Ugh, wow. in the yeah. most fun Was everybody like way. our age? Yeah, probably. Yeah. There were some, I would say, like teens as wow. well. Like I think the message of um, being a silly 
little man uh, has resonates throughout Lingers, the generations. Yeah. Evergreen. <laughs> but um, it was really, really good. Really, really, really fun. I realized in doing it that I've never gone to like a stadium like concert like oh, that. Oh, really? Interesting. You haven't paid $25 for a beer? <laughs> no, no, but I did I did last night to have yeah. a high noon poured into a cup for me. Well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I realized I was like, I've only ever gone to like smaller venues or like a music festival, but I've mm. never like done that. So it was really, really fun. They were really good. Travis Barker says not one word the entire time, but he does yeah. his drum set does fly into the air and he plays drums in the air for a while. Um, and I think Courtney might've been there, but I did not see her and she was not like referenced in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. But I looked at her Insta story and she was in New York. So why wouldn't oh, yeah. she? Maybe I mean, yeah. Travis mentioning any mention of Kourtney Kardashian when I would like in your sort of like late 90s world, I feel like would be disruptive. So I'm glad they kept it. It pure. would be disruptive. And I don't know how the crowd would actually react to mentioning Kourtney. Like people have very visceral reactions to any Kardashian. Yeah. And I think <laughs> especially like a Blink-182 millennial crowd, I feel like she could get booed potentially <laughs> like, well okay the real ones the real ones know from the reality show which i kind of relate to is that travis does not like or he's not like super happy when when his um wife at the time visited him after a mm. show and after a show he likes to decompress and like he's really sweaty and he's truly a performer and she was like trying to love up on him and he was like no like this is my work like you can't be coming here like it's not like a playtime thing. So mm -hmm. I can see why he didn't. And also th the other thing is that reminds me like when I see stadium shows or whatever in the t in the age of Nepo babies and like all these people who may have gotten a lot of opportunities just because they're well connected there are many many people celebrities that we know that are f like I think what you were saying just really confirms like, wow, some people are famous for a reason. And that is the reason why that's what I thought when I saw Travis Barker drumming for the first time, like it live or like I remember I was like, oh, this is why he's like, he's an incredible performer. Yeah, yeah that's I was true. like watching them play. It really got to me where I was like, OK, this band is like it's like a half silly joke band, half mm -hmm. like just actually a really good band yeah. so um yeah. yeah I had a great time and I think I might start bringing more like live music back into my life yeah. I think I mentioned this to you that death cab and postal service are going on tour yeah that sounds really really good I in high school I was weird I was I I was like I don't think I'll ever listen to another band in my life I don't I don't oh, simply really? don't need that to makes yeah. so much sense no I saw death cab like two years ago and guys did not know they had that many songs. Is so all they're only saying. doing transatlanticism, I believe. Okay, good because I'm it's like, like a real throwback like, tour. It's a real throwback tour. No, yeah. this guy was first of all talk about glow up. Benjamin ben looks great. Yeah. yeah, Gibbard. He looks great. He's fucking aged well. He's sober. He's he's very mm. fit. He's hot. But I'm telling you, dog, I did not know that he played for like three hours. And I'm like, I did not know you had the this. Cap Era's tour. I know. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Ugh. Well, you know, fortunately, fortunately, this is our first topic. 
does relate to music. We'll start with our number, and today's number is 100 million because that is how many albums Tina Turner sold across her 83 years, which is just not enough to have had this woman on the planet. Her impact, of course, goes so far beyond that. She was born in Tennessee in 1939, and she had so many accomplishments. Just one is that she was the first black artist and the first woman to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. Wow. You know, something that wow. is super iconic to her that stands out to me, and I know you worked on this million year tribute, is that she really found a lot of her biggest successes a little bit, not late in life. Your 40s are certainly not late in life, yeah. but we do associate a lot of the, you know, the idea of being a sex symbol and being a fashion icon, unfortunately with, with youth a lot of the time. But I mean, her biggest moments that really cemented her kind of public persona in that, in that realm, you know, happened in her early 40s. And again, she passed away at age 83 this week and just had yeah, an incalcul- incalculable impact on, on society and was a Baptist Buddhist, which is cool. Yeah, yeah, she, I mean, you know, just, I, I, I bring in my faith sometimes, but she practices the same sect of Buddhism that I do, like that I grew up in. And um, her her movie with Angela Bassett, which honestly is like, if you don't believe the Oscars are racist, watch <laughs> Angela Bassett's performance in What's Got Love Got to Do With It and tell me she didn't deserve an Oscar. Like she went through, she went through vocal training, whatever. Anyway, that movie's great and it shows you, but really like, I mean, not the most inspiring thing about Tina is, but it's just like, it's just really inspiring that she's someone who like from the moment she was born, went through a lot of hardship uh, was abused by family members, by her mother, and then went on to this very abusive uh, relationship with domestic violence with her husband. And I think that, again, it's not that it's shocking that somebody in their 40s uh, is like an icon or something. It's like she got this revival and the second chance of and like all this stuff in her 40s, and it wasn't easy for her at all. Um, I learned a lot, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of this from her books, a lot of this in her Broadway show, which is really good. But yeah, it's just like she got like this whole thing, you know, at, you know, it just inspires hope of like, you know, just because you go through a hard life or this and that doesn't mean you're not defined by anything. And she kept pushing the limits of like, you know, also she was like really into rock, which is also yeah. a, a new frontier that like <laughs> black women weren't in and all that stuff. So I don't know. I just really... It's a sad loss, but really inspiring story. Yeah. As you read her, the obituaries, it's crazy. It's almost like, I can't believe this was all the same person because she inhabits so many kind of like big moments. And, and like you said, like women in rock and roll, like her proud, her proud Mary moment, her Rolling Stone covers, um, you know, the, the really, really intense traumas she went through and like how those have been revisited. So she just like, she just looms so, so large. Yeah. I think that there's something really like big about how the way that she came forward about the stuff with Ike, her husband, the way that she allowed that to be explored in her memoir, in the movie that you talked about, uh, in all these different adaptations of her life. And it's like, there weren't a lot of people talking about that Mm -hmm. at that time while she was going through that. Like even like marital rape wasn't illegal until the nineties. So it's like, this was a time when she was really coming off. We, we were really coming off the heels of a time when like women couldn't have credit cards, all this different stuff. Like being abused by your husband was like this silent thing that a mm-hmm. lot of people went through. And for her to be open about it, leave publicly mm-hmm. with, you know, kind of huge risks to herself. I mean, ultimately she was the yeah. talent behind that relationship. But when you're in an abusive relationship that is 
tied into your career and the person is like financially abusing you too. It's really hard to like, I imagine it was hard for her to realize like I can leave and still continue my career. So to like have that example of like, here's a woman who left her music career was all tied up with this other man, but she left and then continued to like Mm -hmm. thrive, have an even bigger career than she had before, continued to put out hits, continued to be an icon. I think that's last name. Yeah, I think that's so I, I when I was writing the blurb about her for the SUP newsletter today, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice because the first time she was inducted, it was her and Ike together. Mm-hmm. And then she got inducted again later as just herself. Mm-hmm. That's iconic. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. Whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of the things I like to buy on Etsy have little dachshunds on them or are four dachshunds. Dottie's got a whole litany of new sweaters and harnesses and all kinds of fun stuff that we get lots of compliments on when we're out on walks. A gifting moment is always just around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Speaking of iconic. Oh, gosh. I know. <laughs> I was like sitting here like, how, the, how do we pivot? Do I even want to? All right. Speaking we'll pivot of icon. Desanctimonious. <laughs> The main news is what we anticipated earlier this week, which is that Ron DeSantis has announced his candidacy for president. And, you know, the Four Seasons total landscaping energy was strong. The genre remains. Apparently, no one at Twitter saw the Love is Blind reunion and thought we should make sure that our servers are prepared for an unprecedented influx of traffic. (laughs) Because the website and app appeared to crash. I mean, it didn't appear. It did crash as Elon Musk and Ron DeSantis signed on to an audio-only Twitter (laughs) spaces. What was the name of that app that was big for like a minute during the pandemic? Clubhouse. Yes, (laughs) Uh, yes. Lakeith Stanfield was famous in the Moan Room, which is a movie <laughs> that just people would compete on who had the best moan. I'm, I'm, I'm serious. Look it up. Anyway. <laughs> oh, God. All right. So, yeah. And apparently, yeah. Twitter spaces doesn't even need to be a thing. We already saw Clubhouse failed. But because the website and app appeared to this crash, and according to the New York Times, the tech reporter wrote about this this morning, Twitter did no advanced planning for the event. And of course, it doesn't, I mean, that might surprise us three months ago, but it's like, they don't, there's not even a, a person there whose job is to do the advanced planning. Who's like, he has gotten rid of so many people. One person could be heard saying during kind of the initial delay, this is going to be a stain that Trump is going to leverage for at least a few weeks. I just love that nothing was working, but what did work is this very cogent, like well-worded thought that did happen to leak through criticizing make what was it happening. Through. Yeah. yeah. After about 20 minutes of fumbling around, Elon Musk began a new chat, which seemed to work. So apparently 600,000 people signed on to the initial event. I've seen some ranges of who was there by the end, uh, ranges from about 70,000 to 250,000. But by, by any measure, quite a fraction. I mean, you really don't get people's attention for very long. Like, 
I don't know. Like I waited, you know, I waited 15 minutes for the Love is Blind finale and then I left. Nobody's doing that for Ron DeSantis. Nobody is doing that. People did not stick around other than probably like his hugest supporters and the media that it's their job to cover him. So, you know, we will get to the substance of the announcement. That That's important. But we got to stay on this dial for a bit longer. Both of DeSantis's main 2024 foes, President Biden and Donald Trump, absolutely reveled in the catastrophe. President Biden tweeted, uh, this link works to donate to him. And then so did Asa Hutchinson, the Republican, the other Republican in the race. I'm not sure who tweeted it first. Uh, Donald Trump, even Fox News was like, if you actually want to see Ron DeSantis, watch our network. Don Jr. tweeted, uh, hashtag disaster, which is unfortunately funny. Got him. Got him. Got him. (laughs) (laughs) And DeSantis' team, of course, tried to spin this as just a sign of his popularity. They pulled the Kim K. Yo, he broke the internet. Yeah, they were like, the servers are melting down. It's like, it's no. I mean, they are, but it's because you guys have fucked up this website. Yeah, 600,000 people is not the full internet. Exactly. Like, it's absolutely not. It's the population of Wyoming. It is just so funny to me that, like, Elon Musk cannot stop losing. He is just absolutely, like, ever since he pulled this Twitter thing. It has been L after L after L for this man. His rocket didn't launch. Like <laughs> He should live in Williamsburg if he loves to take the L so much. Oh, oh. there you go. That's there a New York reference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it it's just so funny to me because it's like you would it it it's all comes down to his ego because you would think that like, okay, we're planning to do this presidential announcement. It's clearly going to be a huge deal for how this platform is used in the future. Tucker Carlson is relaunching his weird show on Twitter, apparently, or he wants to, if Fox will let him and he can get out of his contract, whatever. But it's like, clearly he's trying to move into a conservative media space. So, So you would think like, let's do a test run. Let's make sure this is all set up. No. (laughs) Nothing. He's never, every decision he's made regarding Twitter, he's never run by like a single other person. And that was just on display in a crazy way here. And then for the DeSantis campaign to be so up Elon Musk's ass and so like, just like buying of his shit that they're like, oh, Elon's definitely got it. We don't have to, we don't have to make sure that they're doing test runs or anything. Like Elon's definitely got it. And it's like, no, he's destroyed this website that hasn't been working for weeks. So why would you assume that he's understanding? I just feel like <clears throat> this whole um, audio only is the, was the thing that kind of shocked me. I thought it was yeah. going to be like a video live stream, but it's just like so symbolic of everything that Ron DeSantis stands for. Like, audio just reminds me of, like, everyone gathering around the radio. And if you think of his race policies and his gender policies, <laughs> it is so 1930s. Perhaps that, that was the point, yeah. Yeah, and if he's trying to, you know, get into fascism, that was also popping in the 40s, too. So maybe that's why he decided to have this They radio- should hire you for their PR. <laughs> Yeah, um, <laughs> the spin prefer- doctor over here, <laughs> the fascist spin doctor. Well, again, uh, I'd prefer not to. <laughs> I'd have to bow out um, of that one. But that would be yes. a conflict. That would be a conflict. Yeah, so, be- I mean, we will get to kind of what he said, but do you think that the 
this botched announcement matters? Do you think it will impact the success of his campaign? I mean, maybe not tremendously, but I think I think maybe a little bit. I mean, he is marketing himself as the the competent version of Trump, the version of Trump that can get stuff done. And this man couldn't even announce his own campaign. He has cemented himself as a joke to the media who covers him. Even Fox News was laughing at him and using this to make fun of him. That's not that's not good for him. Uh, that's It's going to impact early fundraising numbers. What do you guys think? Do you think this is going to be a little bit of a blip or do you think it sort of shows us something that we might see more and more from him? I feel like two things. One, it's like, it's not going to hit his, as many things on Twitter do, it's not going to hit his actual fan base until two weeks later when they see it on Facebook (laughs) and then have the ripped audio on Instagram three weeks, four weeks later. (laughs) And also part of me, this is like speculation, speculation, allegedly, allegedly was like, what if Elon paid some money be like mm-hmm. announce on this site on my site and i'll give you a nice donation or some kind of in-kind mm-hmm. contribution or boost or something so maybe he felt but also yes this is symbolic to answer your question this is symbolic and it will hopefully negatively impact and you know again we're not talking indictments or lawsuits about trump we're talking about uh, this guy's failure. So mm-hmm. as long as the heat offs, you know what I mean? It's like kind of yeah. like hot potato right now with the Republican nominees. I think like, so I don't think like this will be the thing that lost him the primary or whatever, but I think it's a very bad omen for him. And I do think that this is the exact type of thing that a Donald Trump fucking loves mm-hmm. because he There is no doubt in my mind that Donald Trump is going to mention this every single fucking time he goes out on stage and talks about Ron DeSantis. He couldn't even launch his own campaign. It was a disaster. Oh, did you try? I tried logging in, which, of course, he didn't. But like, you can't even (laughs) it's it. You can't even hear him. You can't even hear what he's trying to say. It's a disaster. Like all, you know, like Mm -hmm. I just, this is the perfect thing for him because he loves to just like take a little moment and like talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. So if he's able to now successfully build this picture of Ron DeSantis as kind of a clown, which he is a clown, but for different reasons than what Trump will say. (laughs) But, like, if he's able to build this picture of, like, this guy who is, like, a fake version of me, he can't even use Twitter, uh, like, his campaign's a mess, da-da-da, then I think that that is what could... It could help, ultimately, to paint the picture that will lose Ron DeSantis the primary in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Those are such great points. It's not necessarily like the immediate impact of that moment, but it just sort of calcifies him as like, just like the guy that can't get out of his own way. I suspect that. So let's sort of talk about the substance as well. I think as soon as this thing, I mean, once the platform was stabilized, Ron DeSantis announced he was running for president. And, and the immediate question was, bro, why did you even do this in this format, because all he did was read his stump speech, which he could have done in front of, you know, adoring crowds in Florida, not like reading on on a Twitter space. I think that something tells me that his staff like told him not to do this, but he was like, 
I've been reading a little bit that he and his wife are like very like they're the campaign team and they like basically are not getting along well with everybody that works for him and he really leads the ship and um I don't know hopefully after this he will I mean I hope he doesn't listen to his team but I wouldn't be surprised if this was sort of like his idea I think that he and Elon are very similar figures and that they both are kind of like Twitter pilled into actually thinking that Twitter is like a huge deal and the next frontier for all of this thought. And they think that opinions they see on Twitter are actually reflective of like the real world. And so it led Elon to like make the platform totally unusable and for him to like upend the blue check situation. Cause he's like, everybody's mad about blue checks. And it's like, no, the 20 dorks that reply to all of your tweets are mad about blue checks. Like that's, not a real thing. And I think DeSantis sees Elon Musk as like a co-conspirator on this weird anti-woke vision of the world that he thinks is very popular, but is actually just the same couple of people tweeting at each other all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So basically, he just read that speech, and then a bunch of conservative names were planted to ask questions, basically just to let him tout his policy positions and his culture war positions. All of the policies that we talked about on Monday, we went through them all in upsetting detail. So listen to that episode. He basically vowed to impose on the American people, and he explained how he has used his position to guide Florida lawmakers towards these policies and how he's been studying the Constitution about how to wield executive power heavily once he's in office. Like you you said, he was a little he's he's a little too obsessive about kind of like the Twitter fights of it all. He was weirdly highbrow and wanky about certain things. He said the phrase ideological capture, which is not something that I think a lot of uh, red state voters are thinking about. Uh, ideological capture of the nation's public university. He complained about how liberal Vanity Fair and The Atlantic are, which like The Atlantic ran like a profile of Harlan Crow <laughs> this week. He didn't say anything about Trump other than saying he hopes that he can debate his opponents. So Really not much interesting to take away other than that he's doubling down on everything he said. He defended his fight with Disney. Something interesting to discuss today that Millie raised is that Trump and DeSantis are both angling to be the populist version of a Republican nominee. I think when we hear populism for a while, a lot of us immediately thought of economic populism, candidates who don't necessarily emphasize their views on culture issues, in fact, de-emphasize those and de-emphasize the importance of those, um, but focus instead on changing the structures that kind of keep the middle class less wealthy than the elite class. In their newsletter this morning, the New York Times warned spectators of this race that actually the most coveted voters in the 2024 election, especially for Republicans, are people who are fiscally liberal but socially conservative. So people who obviously want, you know, tax policies that benefit them more than the rich that allow for upward mobility, but who actually really do care what trans people and women and and gay people do with their body and what books are in schools. So this seems like sort of like a, a an inversion of what we talk about a lot, which is the you know fiscally conservative, socially liberal types. Those people are not really uh, the ones that are going to move the needle, and at least not in the Republican nomination. So Millie, why did this resonate for you in terms of you know the DeSantis conversation? Yeah, I guess for me, I think that. When we when we talk about social policies, healthcare, and all of that, you know, it, it's something that it's ha- it's has it's been on my mind of like people do want help from the government, and people yeah. do like when government you know assists them, and people have no problem getting Obamacare or this and that, you know, or any kind of SNAP or this and that. But it, it's but, so 
I think that that has been for a long time, the Republicans out of step. And as we've talked a lot about like billionaires, there is something now in the water in general, in a mass, there's a mass conversation as we're talking about the strikes and Starbucks unionizing and all this stuff. There is a mass conversation that everyone can agree on, on both sides of the aisle about economic inequality and how to address that and government intervening with that, you know, um, for the most part. And I think that uh, where I thought this was a really great point of like where where it differs is the nuances of these really important rights of like, you know, people being able to use whatever bathroom or like having a black uh, caucus in your, or, you know, a black, um, center in your college or like a, whatever, you know? So, uh, I think it's really interesting when, when they talked about Ron DeSantis's policies of like, you know, not taxing your, I don't think he's going to tax the rich, but he's going to get rid of some loopholes or whatever, uh, and, and, and provide some help, but also like these super draconian, fucking social laws and i think again like as we said for a long time i feel like in the you know in the obama era it was very it was very um common to hear uh i'm fiscally conservative but socially liberal and the tides turned so Mm -hmm. i just that's what was interesting about it yeah to me it's really one of the things that made me think about is the extent to which these voters that they're talking about, these ones that if you were to pin them down on their like fiscal situation, they would probably agree to some pretty progressive things, but are socially conservative. The degree to which like the social conservatism to not for lack of a better word, trumps the other stuff because Mm -hmm. it's not like, when Donald Trump was yeah. in office, he delivered on any economic progressive policies. He actually cut taxes mm-hmm. in a way that was like not beneficial to people. Maybe Ron DeSantis will like fiddle with some loopholes, maybe, but he's going to be a, in the pocket of corporate interests in the same way. But Republicans have been so good about firing up and animating people Mm -hmm. on the social issues Mm -hmm. because they're able to say like this is it's happening to your kid they're gonna make your kid identify as a male cat at school or whatever like and you and they won't even tell you and like just like like stuff that's like as we've talked about like stuff that's actually not even really happening but they scare people with it. It maybe feels closer to home. Whereas I think that people who are fiscal, who actually agree with a lot of progressive policies, I don't think that they feel as close to or as empowered to change the things that they see wrong with the economy. Like I feel like they feel like these economic trends just happen to them. And Maybe they support universal health care if you actually ask them, but it doesn't animate them the way the <laughs> same way as like some of the, as the same way as like they're they're selling yeah. rainbow flags at Target does for whatever reason. And so I just feel like what it says to me is like, how do we 
show people that there is stuff that they can vote for that will better their economic situation too. Because I just feel like these people don't think that way. Yeah. It's very tough. Yeah. It's always been nearly impossible to sort of break through to people where it's like all of these social issues, these people are starting to think it affects their life. Like they think teachers are trying to groom their kids, but I feel like most people know that's not actually happening. And it is, it's like, how do you convince somebody to vote in their own economic interest? I mean, this is really like, this is the whole problem with voters is that voters don't vote rationally. It's like, um, the author Heather McGee has a whole book called, I think it's called The Sum of Us, where it's like, if if white people actually voted for the things that benefit marginalized people and people of color, white people would be richer and better off too. It is yeah. just one of those things where it's like, what what is it deep inside people that that they can't that they can't overcome. I don't know. I'm just like, get your back. Like, well, it's that's, it's a scarcity mindset Mm -hmm. too, where it's like, you talk to someone and you're like, do you think it's bad that people are bankrupted by healthcare bills, Mm -hmm. even though they have insurance? And that person will be like, yeah, it's a huge problem. But then when push comes to shove and it's like, okay, well, we could all pay into a system that provided everyone with free and accessible healthcare. People are like, not with my money. Right. Yeah. Right. Even you got to give gender affirming care with that. No. Yeah. Exactly. Also, what does it matter if your health care is cared for? What does it matter? Well, also, I feel like most people would still vote for that, and it's the the problem. The reason why we don't have that kind of isn't at the will of most people. It's the will of a few politicians that are getting paid off by insurance, whatever. And but again, it. But again, to your point, Elise, it's that you know, a Ron DeSantis or a Trump is like, how can we cosplay about caring? Like, how can we cosplay and pretend that we care about the price of eggs? You know, and that way is by talking about trans kids. And it's like, yeah, look at you, like, blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? And it's like the fiscally liberal but socially conservative uh, aspect, and it is complicated, but it's also like, it is interesting that it's ch- changed again from uh, socially uh, liberal but fiscally conservative because in my head there is like a huge problem with that because it's just like you don't get Absolutely, social yeah. problem you don't fix social problems without money so you don't get like <laughs> there's like they're all interconnected and now this is like okay cool so you don't want anyone to you know overpay for gas. And you don't want, you want billionaires to like not be so rich, but you also don't want someone to use a bathroom. You know what I mean? Right. I think also like, unfortunately, we know that like education correlates to like there, there are also, I mean, we're talking about a lot of like blue collar, like middle-class working class people. But I think a lot of these people are also people that maybe like, they're just like, I don't need um, populist economic policies. I'm already doing good and I have a good accountant who can get me the loopholes, but I also don't uh, want a trans girl on my daughter's soccer team. Like those are the people that I am most worried about in 2024. Not even just who, those are the sort of like the independents um, that I'm kind of concerned about that I think that I think Ron DeSantis is, is absolutely going for.
We all know your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. Sometimes what starts as a bad hair day quickly turns into a bad everything else day. I'd never found beauty products that really understood my needs, but ever since I switched to custom hair and skin routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair and skin, yes, but beyond that too. Since I started using pros, I've noticed consistently healthy hair. Even with all I put it through with the heat tools and the hairsprays to get this pompadour sky high, it smells great, it looks fancy on the shelf, and I like that it has my name right on it. This formula is made for V. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. From millions of possible formulas, only one is uniquely yours or mine. And Pros isn't just better for you. It's better for the planet. They're a certified B Corp, cruelty-free, and the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. They even have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and adjusts my formula to keep up with the seasons and changes in my life. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription at pros.com slash feverdream. So get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash feverdream. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash feverdream. We have a very quick women's rights and women's wrongs. I think we were all subjected to the video this week of newly divorced Lauren Bobert, the representative from Rifle, Colorado, saying this week that in her experience, birth control is more expensive than having a kid. She recounted uh, going to a pharmacy and leaving because she just thought the price of her birth control pills, the prescription was just so, so out of control. And she said that it would have been cheaper to have a child. I don't even think this needs to be fact checked, but I did sort of want to, I did want to think about in what scenario would that be more expensive? And I really don't think there is any. Only if you're, even if you're taking plan B every day for a year, that is $18,000 a year. And kids cost more than that famously. Why does she say things that are so, so obviously wrong? Well, she's very dumb. I think that's the most important <laughs> yeah. kind of crux of it is that she's a, she's an, She's not a serious person, as Logan Roy would say. <laughs> she's very, very dumb. Uh, she doesn't even know really what she's. I th- I think she's one of those people where like the sentence forms itself as it's coming out of her mouth, yeah. and so it's like we don't even know. But it is very funny because I'm like, okay, do you does she not? Maybe she didn't have health insurance at that point because one of the Obamacare things was to make it so that health insurance had to right. cover your birth control. But even when I was paying out of pocket for my expensive like yaz, it was like 60 bucks a month, which is annoying as hell, but not more than a kid. Well, I'll say this. When I was at one of my first jobs in New York City making $13.75 an hour, uh, they quoted me $40 a month for my birth control. And I was like, nah. I'm not gonna pay. It's like paying to go to but a you gym. You were like, it's cheaper to have a, a kid. <laughs> I was not having sex enough to justify that cost. Um, but you were like, you know what? Not worth it. I'll take my chances. You weren't saying it's cheaper to have a child. It's cheaper to extort someone for an abortion. <laughs> it's, yeah, I'm kidding. Yeah, that's what um, she should have said. That's what she meant. Honestly, she honestly. Just, <laughs> Well, Sorry, Elise, we interrupted you. No, no. I mean, it's it's also just funny because if you listen to her in a roundabout way, she's kind of making a point about how birth control and other prescriptions should be free. Like, it should, yeah. She was interviewing this pharmacist. That's where this came out of. And she was like, 
Do people ever leave the pharmacy because drugs cost too much? And she's like, because one time I had to leave because my birth control costs too much. And it's like, okay, that's actually a real problem, Lauren. What do you think Mm -hmm. we could do about that? Yeah, why don't you kick the health insurance lobbyists out of your office? Right, exactly. But instead she veers into this crazy point that is incorrect and also makes it, and she's like, and that's why we have my son, Caden Bobert. And it's like, Okay, so now you basically just told your son that, like, he was a copay away from not being with us. Also, (laughs) like, I don't know. I mean, not to say that, like, not to hate on anyone getting a divorce, but girl, maybe if you did take uh, plan B, uh, you wouldn't have the cost of being married to someone who flashed his dick to a bunch of teens at a bowling alley. (laughs) Important point. Like, okay, maybe it cost a lot of money mm-hmm. in that moment, but in the long run, how much the did have cost? <laughs> yeah. cost. Ugh, I'm so sick of this dumb bitch, but she's gonna I say <laughs> more annoying shit. All right, now for our men. Okay, this is a fun one. <laughs> Today we're gonna criticize men's clothing choices. Okay, so we are looking at some pictures. We'll describe them to you. But Kevin McCarthy, a Republican, the Speaker of the House. Somehow that did he did successfully become the speaker of the house and Hakeem Jeffries times. fifteen votes he won his fifteen votes 15 and Hakeem Jeffries times. who is the uh, the majority leader the minority leader for Democrats in the house they have something in common this week despite being you know on opposing sides of every fight in Congress they both drew the ire of some political watchers by wearing dress sneakers in the Oval Office while discussing the debt ceiling at the White House with Joe Biden we are looking at some pictures here. Um, Elise, you want to describe each of their shoes? How would you describe Kevin's? They are both, I guess, technically dressed sneakers. However, they are quite different styles. But I think the issue is that they are not like, they're not loafers. They're not tie up nice shoes. What are they though? I guess, I mean, Kevin's don't look like sneakers to me. Yeah, they're like Colhans. Yeah, they look like kind of like a leather brown shoe. Um, I think, tie up. Yeah, tie up, lace up shoe. I'm kind of more concerned with where this, like the long socks that also like bleed into where his pants end. I think that's just like not how I would be wearing my socks. But to me, these shoes look like the type of shoes you could wear. Like I, I wouldn't clock these as not mm. like a nicer shoe. Hakeem Jeffries' shoes are. More of a sneaker, Mm -hmm. I would say. They're clean. Mm -hmm. They look nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they both look like they're dressed for work. Yeah, his look more like a sneaker to me. I think they both have the same sock issue that I'm not loving, but... They're both wearing striped socks. Yeah, but I guess for me, I'm just like, I just need you guys to figure out the debt ceiling. I can't, like... I. I'm not looking at their feet. Um, In the second picture that you have, Hakeem's Jeffrey's shoes are definitely more of a sneaker, but even still, they're like a nice sneaker. Like sometimes Danny. Yeah, like like sometimes they're just a black leather sneaker. They're a really nice black leather sneaker. And then Kevin McCarthy's are like the ones that, like Bridget described them as like the one your mom, the pair of shoes your mom buys you before your first corporate internship. Like they're. Yeah. 
you've you've seen these if you've ever dated a consultant. <laughs> like yeah, yeah these are like the brown. They're the Cole Haan ones. Yeah, they're not necessarily sneakers, but they are both apparently too casual. But as um as Derek I pointed out, he compared them to some of the other people's shoes. And it's like Chuck Schumer is wearing probably a 40-year-old pair of loafers that are yeah. extremely stretched out and um worn down and they don't they're they don't look as nice. So I think I think I know the answer here, but are men okay for wearing quote dress sneakers in the Oval Office? You know what? I'm you know me. Fuck office attire. I think office attire is stupid. I feel like so much tech got a big stronghold on our mm. society because they disrupted and all of that shit and I really do feel like it's tied into like we're unorthodox. We, even though really it's really not, and it has all the same fucked up structures as a normal office. I think that the appeal of working in tech and the allure was that you didn't have to wear dumb shit like suits or whatever <laughs> or uncomfortable shoes. Yeah, I just feel like these guys are running around all everywhere, right? They're walking up and down these tunnels and shit. Yeah, I just, I don't really care that either of them wore sneakers. And I feel like this debate is like, it's very old fashioned because again, yeah. like Danny has a lot of sneakers that are like his nicest, most expensive shoe. And there are nice ones that you can get that are like leather sneakers that are really polished. See, this is and- the conversation I actually wanted to have today as a person who believes that nice sneakers are dress shoes. Yeah, that's, okay. And that's the thing is like I do feel like a sneaker can be a dress shoe depending on the vibe of the sneaker. And I feel like both of these shoes have a dress shoe yeah. vibe in that like they're yeah. both leather and, and stuff. And you don't know people's foot health. That's my thing. Yeah. You right? don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe Hakeem Jeffries has plantar fasciitis and this is the way that he gets around. Also in yeah. that Oval Office, there have been reporters in there wearing shorts and Tevas. Like it's not really being in the office. It's more that like it's a slow news cycle and there was a picture of these gentlemen together. But you do know, I mean, there there were just, I, I feel like it was a little bit of a, of a conversation like it's a bad, you know, if Hakeem Jeffries it's, ever said to one of his staff members, "Hey, you can't wear black leather sneakers," maybe then it's an issue. Yeah. I'm I'm fine with this. Well, just two things, right? Like, first of all, this is why we voted for Biden because if <laughs> yeah. this was Trump, we'd be th- talking we would about never, North Korea today. We'd be talking about North Korea, and my asshole would be so tight right now because of whatever the fuck dumb shit t- Trump said. So, yes, let's argue about sneakers. It's giving tan suit. It's yes. giving shit's calm. It's- whatever. But you know what? I do think that these conversations are important because I think that social norms are changing. And the White House is like the slowest one to change. But I feel like we talk about this all the time when we talk about appropriate office wear. Compare. And this is where I'm going to. This is a rabbit hole. I, I suggest compare what the women of Selling Sunset wear to their office compared to what these fucking guys, I mean, you have the entire spectrum of like what the women of Selling Sunset wear in that office and what Hakeem Dreffers is wearing is crazy. And then also one thing that this reminds me of is people um, reacting to Mina Harris's husband's uh, Jordans at Mm. the inauguration and they're like $2,000 shoes. I feel like $2,000 Jordans that are Christian Dior uh, just fine. as uh, fine. And you don't have to wear uncomfortable wingtip shoes. 
Yeah, I think it's like a weird, outdated idea of like what casual, yeah, what casual is. And also like what they're talking about, the, the U.S. economy is about to collapse. Yeah. Why are we, why are you looking at their shoes? I don't, it reminds me, my mom has a story from her wedding about like she took her wedding shoes to get dyed by this old Italian man and he completely destroyed them. And then when she was like, why did you destroy my wedding shoes? He was like, nobody look at your shoes. Everybody look at your pretty face. Oh my God. <laughs> and that's why I'm like, nobody mm-hmm. look at the shoes. Everybody look at what they're saying. Come on. Well, also, just last, my last point is like, not to be all victim blamey, but um, and it's like, it's totally like, okay, they're talking about the collapse of US economy, but what were they wearing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally, literally really asking for it. We all dread the what should we have for dinner question. I mean, I know I do. I love a home-cooked meal, but I don't always have the time, energy, or groceries to make it happen. Being able to feast on a delicious meal without the long prep and cook times is what drew me to Home Chef over the other guys. Home Chef's meals are effortless, so I can spend less time trying to be Top Chef and more time watching it. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. Whether you prefer classic meal kits with pre-portioned ingredients and easy instructions, speedy recipes ready in less than 30 minutes, oven-ready kits with pre-chopped ingredients, or quick microwave meals that assemble in minutes, Home Chef has you covered for delicious meals without the hassle. Home Chef has over 30 options a week and serves a variety of dietary needs, so you never have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. For a limited time, Home Chef is offering our listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and a of course, free shipping on your first box. Just go to homechef.com slash fever dream. That's homechef.com slash fever dream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard that right. Homechef.com slash fever dream must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. All righty. Now we move on to voicemails, which is also, you know, a, um, we have the privilege to discuss some light, light pop culture affair. Most of your voicemails uh, from the past couple of days concerned our Taylor Swift conversation from Monday and some ensuing events. So let's get into those. Hi, this is Erica from Boston. And I think we can all agree. We don't like Taylor's new boyfriend, Mr. Healy. I refuse to call him Maddie. He is a grown ass man. However, would we be giving a male artist this much grief about some person that he was casually seeing. I don't know. It just feels a little sexist. Here's hoping they break up soon. Love your show. Bye. (laughs) Important question. You know what? And I'm going to answer it. She's wrong because everyone's trashing Bad Bunny for Mm -hmm. fucking Kendall Mm -hmm. Jenner. And and everyone's going back to his entire catalog Mm -hmm. where he talked about colonizers. So, and, 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 and putting it side by side, to pictures of him horseback riding with Kendall Jenner. So I do. I will say, even yeah. though we're 300 years away from equality, it does happen. I see. That didn't come up on my radar, though, whereas the the Taylor Swift of it all did. So I wonder if it's like, it's not so much maybe a sexism that is just the scale of her fame. But I am sure there have been huge people that have dated like very problematic women. But I don't know. Like, remember I've that seen the Bad Bunny conversation? Like, you have. Okay. I've seen the Bad Bunny stuff. Yeah, people are pretty upset about Bad Bunny dating Kendall Jenner. They don't. They Look don't it up. Go like on TikTok. It. Bad Bunny, Kendall Jenner. It's just your algorithm is different. 
Yeah. And also with the Kendall Jenner conversation, it's more about what she represents, Mm -hmm. which like Maddie Healy, I feel like is worse because he just has actually said a bunch of really racist and fucked up stuff. Mm -hmm. So like, I think if Kendall Jenner also had a history of like saying fucked up stuff about like, people of color and making racist statements it'd be bigger yeah that's true it would be a bigger like i think it would be like a bigger deal but it's more he's getting a lot of heat just because of yeah like what she represents as a person and what he represents too yeah and what he has said in his like you know he's put himself out there on political causes in particular and like for puerto rico and like stuff like that and like has made himself political mm-hmm. in that way. So, yeah, I do think that it would be a similar conversation. We're not talking about it just because she's a woman. Like, it's in an... No. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, again, um, I feel like men get this conversation all the time I think the things that men, you know, just thinking about like if their woman has a higher profile or like is powerful in the ways that is unlike a woman, like I know now it's hard to to wrap your head around this, but there was a time where Kanye was a way bigger star than Kim Kardashian. And when they got together, he was yeah. getting clowned on a lot because of her sex tape with rage and all this stuff and all this scandal. And he was getting a lot of shit. And I literally remember he was on a, a morning show and someone was like, um, people say that like, you're not even Kanye West anymore. You're Mr. Kardashian, you know? And like, he got a lot of shit. And I know ASAP Rocky's getting a lot of shit because even how they pose in pictures where he's behind Rihanna instead of in front of her, you know, and all that stuff. Like, yes, I think, but it's, but it again, it's different. Like it's more of like emasculating and those kind of conversations than like you're canceled for, you know, whatever. Which is funny because Maddie Healy once said that he would find it emasculating to date Taylor Swift. That's one of the other quotes that came up is that he in the past said that. Yeah. Which is interesting. Boston's taken multiple L's in this show. I know. So, you know, I think it's always important to apply that filter. Would we be talking about it if it were men? I think in this case, the Mm -hmm. answer is probably yes. And that is also why I made today's Are Men Okay About Clothes? Because we have spent plenty of time talking about Kirsten Cinema's clothes, that it was time that we talk about some men's clothes. Okay. We have another couple of messages about uh, some Taylor Swift news this week. Let's listen. Hi, guys. This is Mary. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I've been listening to you guys for a while. Love your podcast, I think. It's a perfect blend of the politics and pop culture. I'm, I think you guys talk about a perfect balance. So for the haters, let them know that I think it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. um, I was just listening to your Validated. latest episode of where you talk about Taylor Swift and Maddie Healy. And I completely agree. I'm a huge Swiftie, like huge. Like if people know me, they know that I love Taylor Swift. That is like my personality trait. You know, it's one of those things. So I agree with you guys that I'm kind of disappointed that she hasn't done more to speak out against what's happening in terms of the political culture, especially in Tennessee, where she claims that she's from, obviously she's from Pennsylvania and grew up in Tennessee for a little bit. But um, I'm curious to think what you guys think, to know what you guys think, sorry, um, about 
her announcing that she's doing a remix of Karma with Ice Spice. She just announced it today, and I was like, there cannot be a coincidence. This can't be a coincidence that Maddie Healy talks absolute shit, like horrible things, racist things about Ice Spice, and then she is collaborating with her to do a remix of Karma. Like, is it her trying to make up for that? Um, I don't know, but it's very interesting to me, and I'd like to hear what you guys think. Again, I totally agree. Um, I love her, but I wish that she would say more, especially about, like, what's going on in Tennessee and the anti-queer stuff, anti-drag stuff. Um, she has such a huge platform, and she has the opportunity to make a lot of change, and chooses not to, it seems like, and as a Swifty, it hurts me to say this, but I agree with you guys, and thank you for your amazing podcast. I love it, and I listen to every episode, and um, keep doing what you're doing. Okay, thanks, bye. Validated. Validated. (laughs) I, so Amanda sent me the Ice Spice post and then I sent it to Millie with like just a little side eye emoji like look what's going on here there's no way that it's a coincidence nothing is a coincidence in the Swiftiverse she doesn't allow for like she the reason people pick apart everything that she does is because she literally does infuse her life with like easter eggs and stuff she monitors what is being said about her online, even if she doesn't address it. So she knows very well what's going on with all the Maddie Healy stuff. I don't know how timeline-wise collabs work, like mm-hmm. how long this has been in the works or whatever. But she knows for sure what she's doing by announcing the Ice Spice collab with a leader image of her and Ice Spice in the post and putting it out at this time. With no comments allowed. Yeah, which I'm not sure if she always has comments off on her page or what the deal is because she might... She might always just have comments off because she's Taylor Swift and she, like, doesn't even need you to engage in her post. But either way, it's like... Taylor Swift always knows what she's doing. She likes to troll in this way and has in the past. So there's no way that she put this announcement out without full, a full 360 view of how it was going to be perceived and received by other people. Yeah. I feel like it's intentional. I feel like people, the conversation I saw online from Swifties is like, Oh, she's giving ice spice her first number one. She's giving, she's giving, she's giving. And first of all, that's not true. Uh, Ice Spice is an incredibly successful artist. And also, Ebony K. Williams, she's a great, she has a really good podcast called Holding Court. Uh, literally, in her latest episode, was just talking about how Ice Spice is one of the only artists, especially contemporary artists, who owns everything, like from, from her, like, uh, record deal negotiations she made it so she owns all her masters and everything like that so i think it's which is a big struggle that taylor you know (laughs) went through um so the idea that like ice like taylor's giving a gift to ice spice i'm more of like 
I mean, I, you know, the incentive is it, it will be very popular. Everyone's going to talk about it. But I'm more of like, what does Ice Spice gain from, you know, collaborating with Taylor Swift, you know? And I mean, maybe it's a new fan base. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But it, it is very interesting. It is very calculated. I don't think that Maddie Healy, um, like, I mean, it doesn't matter because it wasn't to me. But I'm just like, what he, his apology wasn't enough. Like, it was crazy and he's done so many other problematic things outside no, there's of ice no spice. way she was like oh it's all good now so yeah yeah but you know especially because they only brought up ice spice because ice spice had you know revered the 1975 and also i think maybe said that he was cute or something so and then he said all that really disgusting shit about her so i think it's very calculated which is all in monday's episode as well if you miss that one yeah um, I think it's very calculated. Miss Swift knows what she's doing. Um, I don't know. We'll see. But also the fact that like karma came out a long time ago, wasn't it? Like, hasn't it been over six well, months? It came when out did, with yeah. midnights. Yeah. Which is so, October, and, right? Yeah. yeah. And she also announced that they're doing a re-release of Snow on the Beach, which was like the the song she produced with Lana Del Rey where everyone was like, Lana's like not even really on this song. So now they're doing it. It was like, it was like a double announcement, but Ice Spice was the leader. She used an image of her and Ice Spice for the picture or whatever. So like that is, whereas maybe if like this stuff with Maddie Healy was happening, I feel like Lana would have been the lead where it's like we heard, cause mm. there was a lot of people who wanted that single with more Lana. So I think, had this Maddie Healy situation not been happening, the lead would have been, I'm redoing the song with more Lana to respond to that cult, like conversation. And also we've got a new version of Karma with Ice Spice, mm -hmm. which I think for Ice Spice, like I do think that's just a business decision for her because mm -hmm. she is extremely talented. So she's gonna like Taylor Swift's not giving her anything that she wasn't gonna get in time and mm -hmm. her own way or whatever. But like the Eras tour is so huge that it's like, if she is coming out with her in some capacity on the Eras tour and like getting a new Swifties are like a very, very, very loyal fan base as we've seen. So I, you know, yeah. I get why she would do it to introduce herself to this, like potentially new crowd of, listeners who maybe only know one of her songs or only know her in passing. And then it's like, Oh, she collaborated with Taylor. I actually like this collab, whatever. But if Taylor is thinking that it in any way, like answers the criticism of her dating Maddie Healy, it definitely does not. Yeah. So you're thinking that this collaboration was kind of set up before maybe even they were dating or Ice Spice knew they were dating and then this started happening. And then I'm, I would guess that somebody on Taylor's team was like, is this still cool? And again, if I were Ice Spice, honestly, the percentage of people who consume music that, that also know about all this is probably quite small relatively. Mm. So if I'm Ice Spice and her people, I'm like, yeah, I would rather expose myself to this massive new audience than like, I don't want to say hold a grudge because none of this had anything to, to do with her. Yeah, she, mm -hmm. it's like she but didn't like, ask for any of this, but. Yeah, it is strange. It's weird that it's karma. Like, I don't know. Like, I was talking to Bridget and she was like, I don't think that she actually 
did this, but like there are definitely Swifties who probably think she like actually dated Matt Healy and this was the ultimate thing. Like she never liked him. She just wanted revenge for Ice Spice. But that yeah, is I'm a very Swifty verse. Yeah. Take. But I'm curious oh what God. the song sounds like. It's also weird that it's karma because that feels like it's uh pointed, even though it's probably even though it's probably not if this happened before. But like, yeah, I don't know. It's it's weird. I'm curious to see what the sound sound the song sounds like, but I'm I'm guessing maybe it was just like, let's use this moment to get more attention to you. And Ice Spice was like, sure. Yeah, I would say that it was post Maddie Healy. This was in motion. Really? You think that like I, they, I her team so. got in touch like, hey, this is happening. And yeah, let's make and it I, good for you somehow. Yeah, I, I think it's like Stim- more like Stim- that. And then especially like, again, with the idea that like, Taylor Swift is searching her name and like knows what people are saying about her and stuff. She listens to this podcast, obviously. Yeah, all the time. (laughs) But also, I will say that the Maddie Healy of it all, um, is only exacerbates again what we what we have discussed on the pod of like if Taylor Swift was, you know, this very politic, consistently politically active person who ends up just happens to date somebody problematic that would be one thing but again it's like this silence accompanied with that mm-hmm. is you know is what's like is exacerbating it so yeah we'll see what it sounds like yeah that was a great message i can i can feel that as a as a as a fellow kind of swifty i i i definitely felt heard and felt the tension between being really really disappointed increasingly disappointed mm. in fact and also being a huge fan that's it for our discussion but we're going to round out today's show with another interview i caught up with two women leah stavenhagen and sunny browse they both have als and they're members of this community called her als story which is a group of women diagnosed with als before their 35th birthday they are really challenging the stereotype that als is an old white man's disease uh, when you call something lou Gehrig's disease it's good for, and you name something after a celebrity, it's it's good for visibility, but then it also leads to perceptions about who has it that doesn't really fit with their lifestyle. They're two incredibly vibrant uh, young women, like many of our listeners, and it was really fascinating. They were so generous with their experiences, and they gave some ways that you can help them. Uh, we're going to help them raise money for a retreat that they do, so look out this weekend for that GoFundMe. When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going, but there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet. But you don't have to give up some of your faves entirely. Impossible Foods makes meat from plants. They're solving the meat problem with more meat. By creating delicious meat from plants that's better for you and the planet, Impossible lets you enjoy some of your favorite meaty products with a plant-based twist. Ground beef, homestyle meatballs, sausage patties, all made from plants. And that's just a few of their delicious and versatile options. No more tension between craving meat but not wanting to eat so much of it or sacrificing your carnivorous faves for your health. Indulge in nutrient-packed, plant-based goodness and feel good doing it. Check out impossiblefoods.com to see how you can help solve the meat problem with more meat. That's I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E-F-O-O-D-S dot com. Hello, everyone. It's Amanda, and I'm back with our guests today. They are Leah Stavenhagen and Sunny Browse, who are both members of the community Her ALS Story, which is a group of women diagnosed with ALS before their 35th birthdays who are challenging the stereotype that ALS is an old white man's disease. Thank you, Leah and Sunny, for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you for having us. 
Of course. I, I got an opportunity to talk to Leah a couple weeks ago and uh, we're so excited to learn more about you both and your friends and uh, the others and the group. So just to sort of start super, super broad, can you each tell us about when you were diagnosed with ALS? Leah, do you want to start? So and cut me off if I go too long because with ALS, it's such a long diagnosis journey. Is it? So for me today, I can recognize that my it all started back in 2018. Very early, I started waking up at night with leg cramps. And this, I can now say, was the beginning of drop foot. So little by little, I started having trouble balancing when I was doing yoga. Running became difficult. Steps became difficult. But this went on for a good year without me really realizing something was actually wrong. At one point, a doctor told me maybe I should take some magnesium supplements, which I kind of did, but you know, whatever. And then in the um, during my Christmas break of 2018 to 2019, I was with my family in Israel, and we were climbing the Masada, if either of you have been there. It's like millions and millions of steps to get to the top. And I was so much slower than my sisters, because like, wait, this isn't normal, like, we were all very active. Why am I so much worse than they are? Feeling my competitive side coming out. And so this prompted me to go back to a doctor thinking, you know what? Something must be wrong with my feet. Maybe I need to go to a podiatrist. I need to start some PT. It took about three months before I actually got myself in front of a neurologist who did this test called an electro-EMG. Sonny probably has a pronunciation of the real chest and electromyogram, I think, myogram. Um, but um, it's like weird acupuncture. So they poke little needles all over your body to test the muscle reaction. And from there, so this was March 2019, it was quite clear that I had ALS. That's when I learned what it was and that I had it. But to have an actual diagnosis, it took another nine months because it's a diagnosis by elimination. So it's just super slow and super long and leaves you in this very weird glimbo where, of course, you hope that it could be anything else. But, you know, ALS is pretty darn likely. My story is a lot the same. Um, I had... Um, I had a twist in my left... I ring finger and I was playing softball and always really active and all of a sudden I couldn't close my club anymore and so I just made excuses and truly it's not anything because it's not painful and um, that was in April of 2013 and then by December I had thrown back out and pain motivates so I went to and have my nurse practitioner and she was like is there anything else you want to talk about and I was like well I've got this cool party trick and I showed her where my ring finger um, would jump around and she was like well that's not normal and ordered a MRI to rule out MS because I was kind of in that known demographic. And so once we got that ruled out, um, from that appointment to actual 
diagnosis was about 18 months. And I saw a spine specialist. I saw um, pain specialist. I spray-ran a whole lot of autoimmune panels. Um, and eventually I got to a neurologist who uh, narrowed it down to multifocal motor neuropathy, which presents as ALS, but it's autoimmune. So an IVIG treatment and you're back on your feet or ALS. And my insurance denied um, the IVIG treatment. And so my neurologist said, I can fight your insurance or I can send you to someone that can do something with the results. And so that's where how I got to my current clinic. And then she did an EMG, which was, I think, my third at that time. And um, then in January of 2015, I was diagnosed. And actually, I was there by myself. So it sounds like for both of your experiences, the diagnosis portion was pretty prolonged. Um, Does that also delay any treatment you can get or any symptom relief? Like, can you really not come up with a plan of attack until you have that diagnosis? What are you expected? And if so, what are you expected to do in the meantime? I can speak from the U.S. perspective um, where Leah was diagnosed. Um, somewhere else, but um, you know, the our wonderful healthcare system won't do anything until there is that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So there was like Liam mentioned the supplements, um, you know, PT or stretching or I mean there was minimal things we could do, but without that actual diagnosis we couldn't move forward with any um, medications. We couldn't enroll in clinical trials. Um, you're really just in limbo. Yeah, and I could say it's exactly the same. I was living in France when I was first diagnosed, so I was dealing with it all there. And it was the same thing when I got the actual diagnosis. My neurologist said, you know what, Leah, it still isn't totally ALS on paper because you only have the, like the science behind ALS is a bit complicated, but you don't have the upper motor neuron symptoms, but we're going to say it anyway. So you can have access to the ALS clinic because that's the only thing I can do that will be helpful for you. And it is helpful to finally have a little bit more clarity, mm-hmm. but it's not like they're good treatment options out there. So I think it's interesting because on the one hand, I'm happy that I had over a year where when I had symptoms, and I was just naive. I was going about my life still being a 25-year-old, 26-year-old, you know, loving life. Um, but at, this, at the same time, it is difficult because clinical trials, which do provide a lot of hope for patients, they often have a cutoff date after two years from symptom onset. And so if, like in my case, I think it took about a year or nine months with symptoms before I had the diagnosis, that means I had three months to get to find and enroll in a clinical trial. That's a very a huge flaw with this way the system's set up today for ALS patients. Yeah, yeah. 
And obviously you're dealing with a lot of logistical things and emotional things that probably make, you know, hustling to find, you know, the soonest trial pretty a big challenge. Oh, for sure. You know, at the time, ALS was on the the shorter end of receiving social security benefits. And so, like, as, you know, being in their 20s, being working independent women, all of a sudden were symptoms and we got this diagnosis. And then even if, you know, we applied that day for Social Security, it took six months to yeah. to come through. And so you're now juggling how you survive and prepare for the future and with the system that's definitely not set up to enable you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely have more questions about, you know, your your experiences with the U.S. healthcare system, and especially, Leah, I think you've probably interacted with it in the U.S. and France. But first, you know, can you kind of tell us why ALS is viewed so narrowly as an old white man's disease? Obviously, I'm not looking at two old white men. And does that kind of framing and perception, do you think that influences like understanding and diagnosis timelines and even research around the disease? Um, oh, it most definitely does. Um, I went for a second opinion. Um, I'm thankfully in the area where I have access to multiple multidisciplinary clinics. And so I, when I went for my second opinion, um, the doctor said, if you were a 65-year-old man, I would diagnose you today and be able to sleep tonight. But because you're not, we're wow. going to leave every stone left unturned. So, I mean, that was kind of my first wow. purview into like, okay, I'm not who they're expecting. Um, I'm not the norm. And, um, I mean, just like anything else, it takes time to evolve for clinical trials to change um and we're definitely you know making ourselves known through her ALS story and through our multidisciplinary clinics but um yeah the general population is usually older um white males and the only demographic that has the real like veterans so veterans have are twice as likely to be diagnosed with ALS than any other population. Doesn't matter if you were active or mm-hmm. um, or not, if you what war, if you actually saw combat veterans are the only population that it has a strong um, diagnosis percentage. And so, I mean, for us, that is typically older white males because of history. And I also think just that part of, like, like you're diagnosed, and for me, like, I didn't know what ALS was, but I'd probably heard of Lou Gehrig's disease mm-hmm. before. 
So even the fact that just the name is right. the name of a male baseball player, then you Absolutely. kind of automatically associate the two together. And I think also, like, Lou Gehrig wasn't actually that old when he was diagnosed and then passed away from it. But it's, like, old black and white photos. Yeah, that's so, so interesting. So that makes us think it's older, I think. But And I also had a similar experience to Sunny with the whole having, you know, a professional neurologist specialize in ALS telling me, oh, you can't have that, you're a female. There's just, you know, a story after story in our group of other women being told, oh, you must have been anxious because you were planning for your wedding. Or, you know, just kind of the stereotype of being a crazy woman. Yeah. Which is just outrageous. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, another one of my questions was, you know, if you feel like you've had a harder time, you know, I'm sure you've had great experiences with with doctors and and some not so great ones. I wonder if, you know, we know that women just generally have a harder time being heard by doctors. I wonder if that was also your experience. And it sounds like, you know, maybe that was compounded by the fact that people just were reluctant to, you know, recognize that your demographic could be at risk for this. I think doctors are, I think ALS in some ways is such a hopeless disease. And that especially having that paired with the fact that they have this young, vivacious woman in front of them then it's really easy for them to just kind of put it off. And instead of saying, do you have ALS? To say, you might have a type of motor neuron disease, but let's do a lot of tests. Mm-hmm. And thinking, you know, somebody will have to, you know, really give this very incredibly difficult news, but yeah. I don't have to do that today. Yeah. So I was like a cop out. Yeah. Did you have that experience or sense that you might have? Yeah. Well, I mean, other than being in the room by myself, which I have, rectified with the doctor and um, vocalized at numerous conferences a better way to go about scheduling that um, earth-shattering appointment. Um, yeah. My neurologist was a young woman, not much older than me at the time, um, and she came in and she very clearly laid out you know, the facts, this is, I am classifying you as um, probable. This is, you know, I'm enrolling you in the ALS clinic that meets next month. Um, I left with a credible list of resources. She asked me if I wanted to participate in clinical trials and if I wanted to start the only FDA-approved medication. And so, I i mean, it was a succinct um, appointment. I left, of course, in the days and, you know, all of that. But I had tangible facts in my hand. I had a contact to follow up with. So, as far as diagnosis day goes, I really had a good experience. As mm-hmm. funny as that is to say. Yeah. So I want to kind of pivot to the origin story for her ALS story. Um, how did you guys d- discover it? I, I don't know if either of you were founders, but tell us, you know, how this came to be and how it's evolved. So I was, I was saying earlier, was diagnosed in 2019. And at the time, you know, there were already young women out there, of course, living with a de- disease like Sunny, but I wasn't connected mm-hmm. with her. And so I went home, I Googled ALS. I realized that it was a terminal illness that seemed very hopeless. I saw pictures of Stephen Hawking. I saw some other kind of prominent male figures, but I didn't see anyone I could relate to. 
And also at that time, you know, I was still, my body was still working pretty well. So I could do a pretty good job at ignoring ALS for most of my day. And so I went about my life, but little by little, I was ready to find community. I needed to find people that could relate to what I was going through because, of course, you know, friends, family, they can be super supportive, but they are able to plan for the future in a much different way than I'm able to. Um, and so when I was ready to get involved with advocacy, I got teamed up with IMALS, and we started sharing and promoting the stories of young women with ALS. And that led to kind of in a very grassroots way the birth of her ALS story in April 2021. And so at first, Sunny was also a part of it. And I started it, we were about 10. Today, we're well over 50 active members. So it's kind of heartbreaking that it has to be a group that continues to grow. Mm-hmm. But it, but it's so cool that it's there and that we're able to you know, come together and support each other and try and make a better future for ALS patients. So Two sort of prominent features are a lot of discussions about how the disease has impacted your femininity and also humor. Um, did ha- did you intend for the community to have sort of this like humorous commiseration aspect or did that kind of evolve as more members joined and the community involved? I think it's super natural because it's like cool young women coming together who are funny. And so it has this funny yeah. aspect, but just like me by myself, I wouldn't have been able to make it funny. That's for sure. <laughs> Right, right, yeah. But you could also find so much relief through humor, right? Like, it's super sad to think about not being able to express yourself vocally anymore. But we were making the confessions page, and somebody was saying, you know, I like to pretend that I can't talk anymore so I can avoid annoying people. Like, mm-hmm. that's funny. So that's okay. Yeah, and it makes yeah. it much lighter, right? We can all laugh about it together. Yeah. I mean, humor, it's like the more specific something is, the funnier it is. And obviously, exactly. an unfortunately specific characteristics that you all have in common. I mean, I encourage people to go. I really loved the carousel about um, sex confessions. There's, good, there's some was, good ones in there. Yeah. On that note, you know, how has your relationship with your femininity evolved or changed since your diagnosis? How have, how have you navigated that? I don't know. I don't know that I was like super you know, feminist beforehand. Um, I did have my diagnosis prior to meeting my um, now ex-husband, but before meeting him. And so navigating a relationship and then a marriage with an already established diagnosis um, was kind of not difficult by any means because that's what it is, but um, it was kind of different. And then trying to just be the wife, be the caregiver, be that role, and not having full use of my body. Um, That was really difficult, and ultimately, um, it was just too much. Um, And our relationship just didn't make it. Um, But I'm three years out from that, and I just try to, you know... um, I don't know. I try to mm-hmm. lean into this groove and make sure that um, when I'm using my voice or when I have the opportunity to to speak, that I'm amplifying our group and not just my story, but sharing the stories of our um, members and the struggles of um, the people in our group because 
I mean, I think it's safe to say that Leah and I are very fortunate in our position within this diagnosis and within this community. We're not necessarily the norm, even for young women diagnosed with ALS. And so being able to um, just amplify other voices is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I think like femininity is a bit tough because there's so many aspects of it, right? Like I think of, you know, being a young woman and I was always taught to be, you know, a strong, independent woman. And that was my life. And I loved how independent I was. And it's easy for me to think today, you know, I'm not independent because I need people to do literally everything for me. But there also are still aspects of me that you go, you know, I'm still pretty strong and independent, you know, emotionally and all of that. So it's, you know, it's like, I wish I was that cooked all the time, but, you know, mm-hmm. was born in the medieval times so I, or the, from a, in a, the times of a monarchy. So I could have a bunch of ladies in waiting, right? To yeah. come and dress me and uh, do my hair and do my makeup and organize everything exactly as I want it. But I don't. And so I've had to learn to say, you know what? Like the way my bedroom's organized. That's not so important. Good, my hair is not, you know, looking perfect today. That's okay because I'd rather not start a fight with the person helping me. Um, and so it's like also this learning to let go, which I think could maybe be super difficult for everyone. Maybe especially as a woman, it's difficult to let go. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, it's just like reevaluating things too and deciding, you know, today it's really important that. I'm wearing blue earrings, and so I'm going to make that happen. But some days, you know, that all fades away because you're happy to still be able to, you know, communicate with your loved ones and be together. And it kind of helps put things in perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Where did you get those earrings, by the way? <laughs> they're really cute. My sisters gave them to me. I think they're from Majuri. I'm like butchering Ooh, that. Really? Oh, good. I was like, I was like, I she's gonna so. say France. She's gonna say some boutique in France. That no, no. <laughs> I can't New get York, to. Okay, good, to tip, come by. good tip. Good tip. Um, I wanted to also ask. Um, you know, you you talked about your diagnosis experiences, but what has having ALS taught you about the United Care Healthcare, the United States healthcare system? You know, what's something that you feel like you're uniquely privy to that you wish more people kind of also knew about? It's such a mess. I- <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, something I always talk to, like our group about, and especially new people that uh, come in, is just like you have to be your own advocate and you have to be your best advocate. If you go into appointments, if you sit back and wait for others to step in and take the initiative, it's not going to happen, you know, so, and that's where my type A personality comes in is like, I walk into mm-hmm. an appointment with questions, with ideas, with, I've read this article, I saw that this is going on, um, not just laying back and taking it, but being a very, very active part in my in my clinic appointment, in my home health care. And, um, like, I go to the chiropractor for two weeks. Like, 
just making sure I know what makes me feel better, whether that's physically or emotionally, and taking advantage of those moments and those appointments rather than just playing the victim card. Yeah, I think it's so true that it's like it's all been built. And of course, to some extent, it has to be this way, but it's all kind of like a one-size-fits-all system, which doesn't work from patient to patient within the ALS community because, as Sunny was saying, we all progress differently. We live in different areas. It is just so difficult. You have to try and gather so much information. And so you need to find the information that pertains to you. And that's a huge issue because few people have the resources you know, time, energy, money, whatever, to actually find all that information, especially in the beginning. So that's why there is a huge value in having these communities you can kind of lean into or trying to find the organizations to ask for help from. And I wish I would have found those types of things earlier on because it's so, so much to navigate. But then also just like, I think this, like I feel so naive saying it now because it isn't surprising, but Of course, the system wasn't set up for people with neurodegenerative diseases, especially not young people with them, right? Like, I've been trying recently to find in-home care. And, like, these people show up and they're like, go, like, I've never worked with someone so young before. Go, like, you're not an old lady who wants me to help with the groceries. Like, no, I don't need that help at all, but I need you to actually be my legs for me. And so it's such a shock and it's... I don't know. It's tough because I know there aren't the numbers there to maybe support the correct education, but mm-hmm. but there is yeah. a need, and I wish I didn't have to be educating people that I need to help me all the time. Yeah, and Sunny was nodding along <laughs> with everything yeah. you were saying oh, there. Yeah, I think something that was really interesting to me. So I had the opportunity to retire from working when I was thirty. And so then I, at the time I was living in Fort Worth, which is a pretty big city in Texas. And so I had really decent, and this was pre-COVID, but I had decent care that was coming to the house that was checking on me regularly. I had options. And then when I got divorced, I moved to my hometown of Heiko, which is very rural. And rural home health care, especially post-COVID, is just nuts. And slim pickings, few and far between. But even my therapists that came, and they were fantastic. Um, they would only be approved for so many visits. And then they would have to show improvement in order for the insurance to um, to pay. And then we would take like 30 to 60 days off and then submit another claim. And then they would come out for the, you know, 10 to 15 visits. It's the same in New York. Yeah. And so it was just like. So stupid. Improvement in like your condition or your ability to like. Yeah, like your, they want to see you getting better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you but it's a, a dege- isn't where... it a degenerative disease? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That like seems quite flawed. Most... That is definitely something yeah. more people should know about. Yeah. And oh, goodness. it's like, 
so I got dropped from the home health and no one get on that soapbox, but they, like, it was so stupid. It was just, I got dropped and I was like, so tomorrow I could call and you would have to do a complete new intake. And they said, yes. And so it was like such a dumb process. And mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. so my PT would come and then while she was in her like writing up waiting period before we opened my case again, then my OT would come. Whereas like prior, I could kind of stack those appointments when it came to rural in order to have someone more regularly, you had to stack around. Otherwise, insurance wouldn't cover it. And the hoops you got to jump through to have someone give you a shower is insane. Like, I just want my hair washed. Mm-hmm. And it's nuts. Nuts. Well, one of my next questions was, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you both participate in advocacy as well. What does that look like and how can people help? Like, where do you need amplification? Is it, you know, advocating for legislation? Is it more support? Um, Is it more donations in a certain direction? Um, You know, how can people support you and what are your goals right now in terms of advocacy? So I think as a group, we're currently actually fundraising for our second annual retreat. So it's super special. It's a way for us to bring together. We're anticipating 30 members this year so it's a pretty big feat gathering 30 women with ALS and their caregivers in Cape Cod and so we're fundraising to offset travel costs because we want everybody to be able to be there and benefit from the togetherness regardless of obviously economic status um, and so that we just have a GoFundMe page that's on our um, website but then I think kind of more broadly we're advocating for research because we want better treatment options out there. They will come, but it's a very, very slow, long road. Um, the, the past 12 months, two new drugs have actually been approved, so that's promising, but it, it's going to take a lot for to have some real effective treatments for ALS, and so we support research. Personally, I love an organization called Project ALS, that was New York-based, founded by three amazing sisters back around the year 2000 when the middle sister Jennifer was diagnosed when she was 35. And so her two sisters continue to push forward for research, and it's super impressive how dedicated they are. Um, and that there are there is lots of, maybe not lots, but there is legislation that's getting yeah. slowly pushed through. Um, and there's an ALS caucus in both the House and Senate to vote to, you know, push for better attention mm-hmm. to the needs of ALS patients. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah, those are super, definitely, the GoFundMe and Project ALS, those are super practical, easy ways to quickly support. And did you want to add anything, Sunny? No, I mean, I think what's awesome about our group is that we all have our individual um, cares and causes but we can funnel them into the group and we usually mm-hmm. talk um, about why research over technology or why legislation mm-hmm. over um, awareness and we're able to divide mm-hmm. and conquer and then drive all of those initiatives back to 
were her a story or her the amplified voices of women in this group. And so we can um, help strengthen those causes. Definitely. Thank you so much for being, both of you, for being so uh, generous with your time and experiences. I know our listeners are are probably really impressed and excited to just to learn more. And um, it's just really encouraging that that you guys, you know, have created this community. And I'm sure that when other women find it, I can't imagine the relief they feel to to have found it and know that you guys are there and, you know, with the resources and with the support. It's so, it's so cool that we have this together now. I think I love that I have friends like Sunny that, you know, I would have never met otherwise, probably. And I wish we hadn't had to meet for some reasons, but yeah. now we have each yeah. other and she's amazing. Thank you guys so, so much. We really appreciate it. That is our show. Until the end of democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman, and this is the Betches Up Podcast. Bye. The Betches Up Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Rebecca Sousmacat. Editing by Rebecca Sousmacat. Social media by Amanda Duberman and Bridget Swartz. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails at suppod at betches.com. Betches.